Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to episode 16 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. My name is Ethan Bellamy. I'm the co-host. I work at BP Capital. And Trisha Curtis is the CEO of Petro Nerds. Good to see you again, Trisha. Yes, good to see you too. It is still, uh, it's still May, May 11th. It is, Tuesday? It is yes. still May 11th, Tuesday. <laughs> yes. We're back to back because Digital Wildcatters staff is going on vacation, I believe. Yes. So we're, we're getting two episodes this week. So let's dive in. We are going to talk about uh, EMP and oil field services consolidation. And we're specifically going to dive into Diamondback, EOG, Pioneer, and Liberty. So let's start with consolidation. We've seen three big deals lately. We saw Laredo Petroleum take down Sabalo for $700 million and change. We saw EQT take down Alta for close to $3 billion. And then we've seen Extraction and Bonanza Creek join in a merger of equals to create Civitas. Yes, Civitas, man. Civitas. So that is going to have a, an impact on lots of stuff, but consolidation as it pertains to the service industry is kind of interesting. So... Where do you see consolidation headed and what do you see the impacts as, Tricia? Well, I think it's a bit different. Um, So consolidation for these companies. So it's interesting to me because extraction and probably Bonanza Creek should have happened um, a long time ago. I mean, this is is a long time coming. So when folks talk about like where I get questions from clients and stuff of like where we're headed for consolidation, not just for upstream, but also for, you know, the service side. This is interesting because for the for Colorado and you know we really do probably need to spend a couple podcasts just strictly on the, on the Colorado space but extraction in Bonanza Creek it helps them from a resiliency standpoint for sure because they're now the single biggest um, operator they'll be the single have the biggest footprint and be the biggest operator um, in Colorado but their production has dwindled for both of them um, but it helps them from a standpoint of having acreage being able to drill being able to do stuff and it does help them from a standpoint of, of actually working with the government and the legislative and everything so but it was a long time coming in terms of what it moves the needle on, not much, because the Colorado is a really, honestly, a crappy market, and we've seen production just continue to decline. The rock is good. The rock is good. The regulation. Yeah, DJ Basin is is uh, from Fantat. You can drill cheaply. You can you can you can punch out these wells. They're not three thousand barrel day wells, but I mean. If the DJ Basin was never a bad basin, it was just them. It, honestly, it's the, the political and regulatory environment to, to work in. So they're not a great example of, of in terms of saying what is the implications to the market. But that consolidation does mean they're going to do less. But they've already colors just a bad example because they're not there wasn't much less that they could do. Um, so the impact to the service side and things like that aren't the same. The other things that happen, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this, but Diamondback has closed on their um, so they closed on the guide on. Which I always I always think of Guyana whenever they say that, but they closed on the their, the Guidon acquisition and on the QEP acquisition. So, um, and then obviously Pioneer has uh, purchased Parsley and and Double Point or Double Eagle and people. By the way, people say both of them in their earnings call, so it's not just me. Um, so they closed on those acquisitions. And from the Permian perspective, as you pointed out in our previous podcasts, and whenever I'm talking about rig count and everything, which by the way is still crushing it. Um, when you point that out, you say, well, it's different in the Permian. It, and it certainly is. So when we're talking about consolidation and we think about extraction and Bonanza Creek and EQT and all these, the implications for consolidation, I think, in the upstream space are different in the 
the what the impacts are going to be and the the uh you know, all the impacts that are, we're going to have to see in, in the market for Permian are very different than if in, their, in the Bakken. And we are seeing that consolidation in the Bakken. I mean, Diamondback is selling their, um, it's, they've sold their their Bakken assets. Yeah, they sold uh, $745 million in assets in the Bakken um, to Oasis, yes. which just came out of bankruptcy. Yeah, which so is that's like crazy. So, yeah, so many people, all these companies coming out of bankruptcy are doing this stuff and, and it make, I mean, so the, Oasis is buying up this stuff. And so Diamondback mentions in their earnings call that they, those are positive tailwinds for them, right? They had to get, they got a decent purchase. So the Enter Plus, um, the Oasis, like those aren't small price tags that they're paying for this stuff. So PDP is obviously the value for PDP and Diamondback mentions this in their call is that, I mean, the value for PDP is high um, and it's hot right now. And that's- So do you, do you want to get into the Diamondback call or do you have other thoughts on the- Consolidation. Well, it's part of the consolidation. So okay, we so will just flow, we'll, we'll flow right, right into the So demo. I should disclose that BP Capital is long in our energy fund, um, Diamondback, EOG, Pioneer, and EQT, all of which we're going to talk about. I am actually, and as a personal investor, I'm not, I don't, um, I do, I, I think I've said this in previous podcasts. I bought, I think I said the first podcast. I bought EOG a long time ago at the split at 98 bucks. So I am technically long underwater. as well and no. No, underwater and long <laughs> and i lost everything on oasis because they when they declare bankruptcy i lost everything so that was a few grand so, so we should be clear this is not investment this advice. is not investment advice we are not we're just talking about industry yes. trends here so in terms of and they're interesting so the reason i sort of picked um obviously we'll get into it we can get so let's it. start with diamondback yes but we're but they kind of go together we'll close together so diamondback ug and pioneer and then liberty oil field services pretty give you a pretty decent picture of the the state of play in the industry right now. So Diamondback, I think they're interesting because they, you know, they're very well run company um, and they they have it put together. So they're, they talk about scope one, scope two emissions quite a bit. Um, not quite a bit. I mean, they just piggyback on the, their previous earnings call. I picked up that they're, so if you listen to EOG Pioneer and Diamondback in terms of the three of them, you, you hear more about the energy transition in terms of, and the scope one and scope two emissions and what they're doing on carbon capture and everything or what they may do in the Diamondback call than you hear in the others. And I think that's an interesting standpoint because I think we start, we do have to start thinking about these companies. Um, and I give credit to HL Hunt's wives on this because um, we discussed this about giving credit to- <laughs> And so, for those of you who are not familiar so with what you're talking handle. about, this is a anonymous Twitter Anonymous handle. Twitter person, um, individual, um, smart, um, smart as hell. And we were talking about the val valuations of operators against each other from a, um, from a, uh, energy transition standpoint. So from an essentially from a GHG emission standpoint is that these operators are are going to start competing. They are competing against each other on, on from an emission standpoint of who's better. And I think Diamondback, you know, they're clearly um, trying to lead on this front, right, that they want to be ahead of the curve. And I think from a regulatory standpoint, it's really smart because they they're actually doing quarterly flyovers, um, which I haven't heard any operator say they're doing that. So they're going to do quarterly flyovers to basically double check that everything they're doing on their tank batteries and everything is helping from an emission standpoint. So they're working there. They talk about specifically what are they tracking? They're so they're looking talking, at emissions, yep, fugitive emissions, fugitive emissions. So they're tracking their methane right. emissions so that it's reducing flaring is one and then it's actually tracking all these uh, the fugitive methane emissions so they spoke about it in their previous earnings calls that they were investing you know a certain amount of dollars per well um for these especially in some of the older wells to basically get everything up to snuff um and get it working and then then they announced that they're basically going to hit their their scope one and scope two emissions for um the uh, 
following global accords for scope one and scope two emissions. Um, and that furthermore, that they have invested in, they purchased offset credits to basically be a neutral, um, that their barrels would be neutral. So they they talked about it a decent amount and they're headed, they're ahead of the curve. Now, in, in terms of that, and the reason I say that I, I think the, um, the stuff on the, on your tank batteries and talk about your tank batteries specifically. One, it's important to note that, because I think that this is an example of a company that's ahead of the regulatory stuff, that the industry can do it. This is literally making sure your tank batteries are up to snuff. Not every company is going to be able to afford to do flyovers and checking their their methane emissions. But um, the fact that it can be done from a technical standpoint is really important. To yeah, know. And by the way, you don't need an airplane. That's great if you've got a huge field, but you can just take a FLIR gun and a pickup truck and look at your assets. Right. So, I mean, th there are ways to do it, but the point is that they're they're addressing it. Now, from a, um, I mean, broader picture, so they basically they basically said they're going to spend, um, or maybe this, uh, they're gonna, they have a chunk of capital they're going to invest and continue to spend within, you know, within just the scope one, scope two emissions, continue to buy offset credits. Then they talk about carbon sequestration and advances and stuff they're investing in. And they basically say it's clear they're going to continue to invest in it, that the space is going crazy, that they're following their peers, you know, and they'll be doing stuff that makes sense and, and works and everything. They're a little bit less, I think, on the make sense side than on we're just going to we're going to invest in it and we're going to reduce our emissions. I, I think the the more make sense and stuff is EOG and Pioneer kind of talked about that. And I think that's where Diamond, I've, I've realized that Diamondback is, they do talk a lot about, you know, how they are structured as a company, how the capital efficiency, how they want the market to view them. I mean, everybody talks about that, how they want the market to view them, but it's a little bit different with them. And this is, this is certainly a piece of that, how they want the market to view them. They want to be not just viewed in oil asset class, but they want to be, you know, in, in the broader, they want the generalist investor to be, to be buying into them. Um, and the, so their production's like, to, you know, north of, two, they're 250,000 barrels a day, roughly for production. Um, they close on the Gaidon and the QEP assets. You know, they obviously had the, that advantages um, for the purchase, you know, purchase price for the PDP. Um, and they are maybe looking to sell some additional acreage that, you know, here and there, if it's, if it's favorable to them, um, it doesn't, you know, whether or not they'll go out and purchase a bunch more is, I don't think that's going to happen immediately. Um, but they also talked about the, the efficiency stuff was really relevant in their call. So they talked about um, the efficiency gains that they had on from the QEP purchase, what they've learned from them. So they said, essentially, they checked their egos at the door with all their the purchases of these companies and they they bring in that they bring in the teams in house and then they learn from them. So with QEP, it was really about um, water based drilling mud. So that they said that QEP was very efficient on the drilling side and now they are actually integrating the water based drilling mud um, as well. All of these companies um, at, to some extent talked about longer laterals. Um, I think part of that's because they've been having these acquisitions and they can, you know, they talk about blocky acreage and being able to drill longer, but longer laterals and, you know, the efficiencies on the frack side. Um, so certainly for Diamondback, they are, they're definitely drilling longer laterals. So interestingly, the way I think about the ESG aspects of E&P are, are really twofold. One, there are the funds who aren't necessarily looking to divest all oil and gas stocks, but they are going to require you to check all the boxes on sustainability and corporate disclosures. And, uh, you know, are you working on scope one and scope two? And then there's a whole bunch of ESG investors who just aren't going to own any fossil fuel stocks. So there's sort of two layers of the onion here. I do want to point out, there's a little bit of a digression. Um, I tweeted uh, a new paper um, in the Journal of Asset Management 
from a guy named Lauren Swinkles. He's a professor who wrote uh, an article about who owns tobacco stocks. At BP Capital, we've been making the argument that only gas stocks are going to look a lot like tobacco stocks did and underowned and certainly underloved by the mainstream press and, and regulators, but performed pretty well for a long time because the market still demanded them. And we think there's a similar similarity there. Do you see Diamondback as a natural further consolidator in the Permian? I think, I think, I think the, I do think so. I think that if you, you know, if push came to shove and there was a, there was a purchase, I mean, I'm just looking at their map again. They're not exposed like essentially at all on the New Mexico side, but they have a very nice footprint. Which now. is good because you don't want to be. It is. Um, and for at least mean, for the next four years, yeah, right? At least for the next four years. So <laughs> they have a good footprint. I could see if it's, if it's bolt on, if it's blocky, you know, if it fits within their portfolio, I could see them doing it. You know, I all they have, it's, it's, what, 418,000 net Midland and Delaware Basin acreage. So it's a decent amount. So that's that's essentially half of Pioneer, but it's a huge it's a huge chunk of acreage. And then they, you know, I think it was one of the guys in the earnings calls said, uh, you know, I've never gotten in trouble because they're asking about well spacing. And they do talk about one, doing all the wells at once. So it's, which that's what we've learned. You know, you, you can't be doing these wells, a chunk of, you know, one reservoir and then come back to the next one underneath it. But they talked about doing, I think it's the first bone springs that they're doing, you know, tighter, but then the second bone springs may be a little wider. And the guy said, hey, look, with these asset purchases, and I think all, to, to an extent, all these earnings calls essentially echoed the same point, is that we have more acreage and therefore we're not changing up our, our well spacing. Um, but I think it was in the, in the Diamondback call, they said, we're not I've never gotten in trouble for drilling a bad well. So if it comes on good and you're slightly wider spacing, then that works just fine. Um, I could see them as they're one of the bigger players, right? They're for, so they are natural for their consolidate. I just don't know how far that's going to run. Their production, um, okay, so I'll correct on the program. From an oil, I love it when companies break out oil barrels per day as opposed to BOE per day because the permian is very, very gassy and it's a completely different story, especially now with higher oil prices. I think it's important to break it out. But they went from, I mean, their Q1 2021 is 184,000 barrels per day. So honestly, they're, you know, they're 200,000 barrels a day for oil production. I could see them in a way wanting to grow that. They do say that, you know, they're, you got to think about their maintenance capital as well now. And so this gets to this hedging thing is that, you know, they were asked about hedging in their in last quarter's earnings call. And they said, yeah, we're going to we're going to continue to hedge. And then they mentioned in this earnings call um, that they are not uh, that they are basically for the full year, they'll lose about four hundred fifty million dollars um, on hedges, given the current strip. Um, but interesting enough, when they're kind of pressed on hedging and stuff, it's not like they want to throw it completely out. I mean, and that's very different from Pioneer and kind of different from EOG as well. Is that Diamondback is a little bit more um, nuanced in their approach. And again, this is, I think, how their their executives approaching Wall Street and the market. They're more nuanced in saying, you know, OPEC still has barrels offline and this is a commodity business and this is oil. So we're not you know, necessarily out of the woods. And I just think it's a it's a, it's a little more honest, you know, in terms of like you don't know what prices are going to do. Yes, you can be comfortable. This is a comfortable place. But hello, we're coming off the back of minus 37 last year. So. Right. So tell me what oil prices do under this scenario. A new variant emerges in the U.S. We get lockdown prices, lockdowns again. And the Fed has to taper because inflation takes off. Yeah, what, is, so, what, are, what are oil prices yeah, look like? Yeah, you're, you're backsliding like 45, crazy. 50 bucks. Exactly. And then those yeah. hedges that Diamondback look really freaking amazing. Yeah. You know? So there's a head. I mean, I think that we have to just be careful is that 
you're hearing this a lot, and this comes back to our previous podcast that we've done, that this sentiment that's emerging from, you know, in the in the U.S. oil patch is very robust. It's that everybody's going crazy and they're going strong and things are going to be really good. Um, and you just have to be careful. The other the other theme, I think, from this is that the um, and you you echoed it when you started this, is that the um, the fiscal uh the fiscal stance of these operators. Are, oh, sorry, you said that on the previous podcast. So these operators are not outspending. At least the Diamondbacks, Pioneers, and EOGs. You they know, have the free cash flow religion. Yeah, they're they're going to spend at least for now. Yes. I love it. Well, they say this is their guidance. They're going to hit their guidance. I think what's tricky and what they're getting asked about in their earnings calls is is you know would they increase production? Um, and you know if the whole philosophy. Um, it's not increased production, then why are they doing these asset purchases? And it's it's honestly kind of a fair question of that if you're if your goal is to not increase it. And Pioneer says basically we're we're not increasing, you know, we should be purchasing these guys so we can consolidate and gobble up the small guys and then they won't increase production. Um but last thing I'll say just on Diamondback, I mean, so they're so the drilled lateral feet, I think, has gone down a smidge, and that's only because I think at the, some of these actual purchases, um, they talk about not drilling for the drilling longer laterals for the sake of uh, drilling longer laterals. So if you if you track their average, if you look up Diamondback and you look up their average lateral length in the Permian Basin, you can see that they outperform and crush their peers on average length um, in a lot of counties. But the importance to, to note on this is because every single company is drilling longer laterals. And we're hearing increasingly talk about two and a half mile long laterals, 15,000 foot we're talking about uh, and pushing three mile long laterals. So every call is talking about this and you hear this in the Liberty call as well and, and other service companies. And so the point of this is, is that we've said it before, it sounds really simple. It makes a huge difference in terms of if every com- if all your large independents are drilling, you know, pushing three mile long laterals, or let's just say they're pushing 12,000 feet on all their wells, they're drilling less wells. So they're getting the increment. And as long as the performance, they're not getting diminishing marginal returns on those and feet. And that's not going to be everybody, um, but it's something these, these guys know. It's, what it's, is the technical upper bound of a lateral length? That, um, so it's been like we we've seen. I think they've tried to test it in the Marcellus and stuff, and in Ohio is like three miles, and that's what we're sort of we're literally hearing operators say we're going to be doing three mile long laterals because we have blocky, nice long acreage positions. And the advantage to them is that you're just drilling less wells, so you ha- you you're reducing your cost. I think a few years ago you would have said you know. Uh, there was a lot of hesitation. We didn't see that one because the, we didn't have the the acreage put together perfectly a few years ago, and two was because people were concerned about completing the end of that lateral. Not that the completion, you know, you could technically do it, but you know, what would the drill out look like? And it was always the toe. It was always that the very end was it going to be perfect? And I would wager we haven't seen enough of it yet. We haven't seen enough two and a half and three mile long laterals at, you know, consistently, especially with these simultaneous fracks and everything to say, are they really not having diminishing marginal returns? But um, it really depends on, so EOG talked about it, it depends, it's situational for them, um, that they'll choose to do it when it works. And they take more about the geology. Other operators like Pioneer saying, no, we're, this is what we have that blocky acres. So this is what we're going for. So I just think it, it, it's absolutely something when you think about the overall trend of the market. So you, when you think about consolidation and you think about big operators like Diamondbacks and, and Pioneers and stuff, buying companies, blocking up their acres and then drilling longer laterals, the implication is that it has a, it does have a, a, a domino effect on the entire service industry, meaning that you do need less rigs, um, meaning that you are doing more with less. And in turn, you need less frack fleets. Um, and we'll get to this with, with Liberty, but I think that's a, hu- that's a really important thing to think about is that you just need less. 
um, and we're already doing less. And so everything in their call is like efficiency, efficiency. And I always say Diamondback, at least a couple quarters ago, used to talk about like for every penny saved, it is a million dollars of free cash flow. So I thought that wasn't important that that's how they're thinking about it. So, um, but interesting to listen to. And I, I think they're they're doing well overall. I mean, they're good operators and they seem to be crushing it and, uh, you know, kudos to them. So, okay, well, let's let's move on to if you're done with Diamondback. I, think I always I'm have done to with check that. now. Yeah, I know you do. If you're done with Diamondback, let's move on to the the widely acknowledged leading independent EOG. Awesome. Yes. And EOG is a little broader because they're not just, they're not a Permian and pure player. So they do have their foot in other basins, particularly Eagleford and William, but they're not really active in a lot of other spots. So yeah, EOG, um, double the, the title of their slide and I'm not ripping on them. Um, but you kind of have, it's shifting to double premium. So Ethan, I think mentioned this in, in one of our previous podcasts when we talked about EOG is the double premium, but it's so it says higher returns, lower declines, more free cash flow. Um, they're honestly, you know, EOG is known obviously for being one of the leaders and, and pioneers in the industry and, and obviously being the company to model in terms of um, for shale, for both from a technical standpoint, from a geology standpoint, from rock, everything. And it is really interesting how they're leading in this U.S. independent space because they have not. Um, I, I do not think they've leaned in really hard into the whole ESG thing. Um, and the reason I say that is because, I mean, I listen to all these calls and you can know how much they actually talk about it. And they don't, I personally don't think they need to. Now they need to work on the same stuff like Diamondback is doing. They need to work on keeping their their barrels low on emissions and they need to, you know, being able to validate that. But they, um, when you're making money and you're making returns and you're crushing it, Special dividend. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, special dividend. They talked a lot about that. It was a I love it. A buck a share, um, and it was kind of like, hey, you know, kudos to you if you own our stock. Now they also, what was interesting is they were asked about that, like, oh, did you get that because you got high gas prices during the storm? And they were like, we got forty million bucks from the storm, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it was six hundred million that they dispersed on their on the on the dollar thing. And they, so this dividend thing is another serious component to this is that. All these companies have a different perspective on how they're this the variable dividend. Um, most companies Which started with Devin. Yeah. So and, and I I tweeted at the time that I thought it was brilliant because these are inherently highly cyclical businesses. And however you want to approach it, I think a variable rate dividend based on your actual quarterly profitability makes a ton of sense. The trickiness, and I think the EUG talks about, is that they don't want it to be very, they want a consistent dividend. Well, of course they want. And, you know, I want a hot fudge sundae every night for dinner, but that'll make me fat and lazy. Well, like that's just not how the business is designed. I know, but so Pioneer is the other company that was (laughs) big on it last summer, right? That's saying, hey, we're going to do this very, so you'll have our dividend, plus you'll have this variable dividend. That's great, but your shareholders still want to know. So, you should, I mean, you're fighting a battle that you're, I mean, in Pioneers had a, you know, a, a decent stock price and everything, but you're fighting a, a battle where nobody loves oil and gas. You're fighting to be in a long only portfolio. You're competing on the ESG side. You have to have these low emission barrels. You have to do all this stuff and you have to have a dividend that's sustained. That's kind of difficult to do when you're, you've got a hedge, but then you lose your money on hedging. And I'm just going to throw it out there. A sustainable, like ratable dividends for E&Ps, if you're not... Exxon Mobil, and I've even said Exxon's dividend, that's suspect, yes. they're, they're, they're overspending on that. I just think it's not a good idea. And in fact, 
We saw the whole midstream space, which has much greater revenue visibility and should be much more stable. Lot with a, just a few exceptions, we saw cuts in all those payouts. That ended up being a lot more cyclical than people either wanted or marketed it to be. So in my view, sure, maybe pick some sort of base dividend and then a variable component, but the idea of over, you know, over promising stability is I think not achievable really in this business. And I think it's bad to entice people with that lure and not be able to deliver. Exactly, exactly. And I think that this is why I thought it was interesting. I have to revert back just for a second on Diamondback because it was interesting when it always comes back to hedging a little bit. It's like, well, you know, so they get this pressure on the hedging stuff and you've done these, these companies are big now, right? You're talking a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. I mean, for for Pioneer, crap, but we're, we're talking, you know, 700,000 BOE uh, a day. So these are huge numbers, right? And, and EOG is producing north of 400,000 barrels a day total as a company. So we're talking about large numbers as a company. They have ma- We now have this thing called maintenance capital. So you have to have enough money to, to, to maintain your production levels, right? And to maintain all this stuff. And that's why they end up hedging. And part of this whole maintenance thing, though, you can look as a company is also your dividend. And so oil prices are great. They feel awesome now. We're at 65 WTI, but we came off the depths of, you know, last year and minus seven, minus 37 WTI. So you have to realize that it's just taken from a perspective. I mean, the fact that these companies are doing well, I mean, a part of it is just the broader momentum for energy and oil prices going up and, you know, this confidence. And they all mention that, you know, every every company is talking about how, you know, the tailwinds and everything and how oil prices are, are great and, and they're feeling good about stuff. But that it's not necessarily these variable, the actual dividend and the variable dividend are just, I, I wouldn't say the variable is suspect, but it's that there's a reason why they call it variable. Um, so it's nice if you have it, but it means that these companies have to, you know, they have to be managing their portfolios really well. Um, they still have to be drilling really good wells. They have to be, you know, crushing on that. And so you can't have crappy wells anymore. You can't sort of, you know, oh, that just didn't perform. And and because you have quarterly guide, you know, you're hitting production guidance. And then you're saying, are we going to grow? Are we trending up five per, you know, single digit growth is what we're seeing. All these companies, by the way, are growing at least a little bit. You know, their their maintenance, they were down last year and then they maintained their production pretty much. And now they're they're going to be growing a smidgen, essentially, which means the companies that they purchase from the consolidation, back to the consolidation companies they purchase, they're not going to be ripping and roaring. They're going to pull those, that back a little bit so they'll need less frack leads, less drilling and everything. But it, it comes back to this. They're now big, big companies and they have to maintain that spending, um, which is what, that from a long term trajectory, when I tell my clients and what I tell the service sector is, look, it might feel a little rough in the short term when you have the consolidation because there's a pullback in activity. But in the long term, it's really good for the steadiness of the Permian Basin. Yes. And let's let's step back even further and marvel for a second, shall we? at U.S. independent companies drilling unconventional wells and being and producing free cash flow. Yes. Yeah. Positivity. So set aside the variable versus fixed rate dividend policy and marvel that we're talking about actual dividends to begin with. This is great. This is incredible. We've come out of this shale boom and bust and massive spending it looks almost like the recovery of the remaining tech stocks after the tech crash when you had this massive yeah. amount of spending and euphoria and then 
the glitz and glam collapsed and now here we are with actual healthy profitable companies making sound investment decisions and buying back stock and paying dividends to shareholders and paying special dividends this is great yeah and <laughs> it, it, it is and it it kind of gets i take it all the way back from that positive standpoint and that resiliency in terms of like one it's it's a reality whether you think you should be adding rigs or not, that's still happening. And whether you think these companies should have survived or not, they did. So um, they went through, you know, bankruptcies and they're emerging, but the companies like Diamondback and Pioneer and EOG, they were never gonna go bankrupt. So we, we weren't worried about that, but they're actually making money now. So now they're making money. Now they're gonna start competing on the ESG side. So they're, um, it, there is a resiliency story here and they are, they're not dropping production. So they're not declining output. And this is the piece that I, I do concerns me that OPEC does is going to miss. And it's not that we're going to grow like crazy, but it's that we're not going to reduce our production. And I don't think we're going to be declining production. I think I think EAA had come out. What was it that we'll be declining 20,000 barrels? So basically, we're saying flat 11 million barrels per day. Is mm -hmm. that the numbers that they yeah, came out? And then they were up a, a little bit next year, but not not a huge growth spurt. No. And that's the trickiness here a little bit is that like so when EUG talks about their shift to double premium it is the what is it? The 60%, it's a 60% rate of return. So it used to be a 30% rate of return, right? 60% rate of return on at $40 oil. So $40 flat um, WTI is basically what they're looking at. And it used to be 30% return at, at $40 oil. So that was their shift to double premium. They update their inventories. They say they have basically 10 years of running room from that standpoint. And they have some of that double premium in all of their, in all their portfolio. Now it, that allows them to basically, they can start selling off things that are not double premium. They say that they're going to start selling off and they do say, you know, we can, we can call BS on this and we can say, okay, EOG 60, that just sounds ridiculous. 60% at $40 oil and 250 gas, no less. Yeah. So, so they have to kind of be crushing it in their wells. And I do think that whether or not some of this is, <clears throat> is, is a little pie in the sky or not, EOG has done a very good job with the rock that they've had and they, um, have done a very good job executing on it. So when they drill wells, they crush it and they um, their performance is good. So I think it's when, from the efficiency standpoint and the trends of the industry and where it's going, I think people should be concerned when EOG is talking about longer laterals and efficiency gains and cost reductions, which every single company talks about cost reductions. So does Liberty as well. You're, we're talking about free cash flow, all these things and cost reductions and 65 WTI. And they say, hey, yeah, we'll probably have service costs rising and everything, but we're going to offset it with efficiencies. Now, massive inflation, everything that could be offset. But the fact that they're going to say they're, they're offsetting it, um, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, the fact that we're we're in 2021, to your point, we went through all this, you know, hell back and forth and, and we're here. And then you've got these big boys who have not only survived it, but are thriving in it. Um, even with all this pressure on them from the market and the ESG and the green revolution, that to me is the really global, but you know, the real bifurcation in the world of oil still going. And so is, you know, green tech and everything still going. Uh, but these companies, in my opinion, are, are going very strong. They are. So do you want to talk more about EOG or move to Pioneer? I want to, I want to get to the, you saw the thing on the, the efficiency. Okay. So it's on, on EOG, they, they have a slide and they talk about like the drilling longer laterals. Which slide for the folks at home? It's slide 11 on their, on their investor deck. And so it's sustainable well cost reductions outpace inflation. So this is the comment that sort of everybody's sort of making is that, you know, regardless of inflation that we're going to see and, and, and we'll certain they're hearing more about the 
um, service cost inflation, then they're actually seeing it. And in terms of the actual service providers coming to them and jacking up their prices. And I think that is coming from, we did see previous quarters, I think, where the service guys tried to increase prices. Um, that did not go over very well um, with folks, you know, coming off the back of what they were coming off. So they didn't do that. And then what you are hearing from the service sector from multiple calls is that, um, is that they, basically you still have companies in the play. So you still have too many companies, obviously in the service space um, and they're undercutting pricing and they're still going after market share. So all that's still benefiting these, the upstream guys. And you're seeing that, but they're also saying, Hey, we've, we're, we're drilling so much faster now. We're completing, you know, 3000 lateral feet per day. And the fact that we're, we're able to do this and we're, we're speeding up on efficiencies from all these, all these metrics, we're offsetting it no matter what. Um, and that's just something that happens in every downturn. Everybody gets better. You know, they just, we, t we tend to be going better and we weren't drilling that long laterals, you know, in the Delaware before and drilling times were slower and everything. And everybody sort of caught up, you know, they got the best guys and now they're all speeding up and we're seeing that. So they talk about, EOG talks about drilling longer laterals, more wells per pad, in-house engineering, drilling motors, simultaneous operations, offline cementing. This simultaneous operations, so what? when everybody's talking about the simul, simultaneous fracks, it's when you basically are fracking, you're fracking twice as much, so you're fracking two wells at once, um, but you're not using double, you, you don't have two frack crews on site. You basically have one and change. Um, so maybe it's like one and a quarter and you're not using, you're not using twice as much horsepower. But the point is, is that you're doing this at once. So it's a time standpoint. And then this, I think to me has probably the biggest, uh, this and the, the sand side has the biggest impact on um, the service sector because Liberty talks about having two, you know, basically they say we're maintenance frack fleets. So about 200 frack, frack fleets for the U.S. Um, and that they have 15% of those and that they're fracking about 20% um, of the, the wells. So they have 15%. So it means what they have 30, roughly 30 frack fleets. Nobody, no frack company is fully like all the frack crews are not fully dedicated, meaning that if, you know, if, if Diamondback has five frack crews, they're not using all five all the time. And then take into account this, if you're doing simultaneous fracks, you don't need as many frack crews as you did before. It's kind of interesting to me that one, we didn't do this sooner, um, that we weren't doing more of these simultaneous operations sooner. I think part of it is pad development is that we always think it's Exxon and it's, you know, 24 wells, you know, together. But most of these guys are talking about, you know, how on average pad, their pad has increased from two wells to four wells to six wells. So we're getting to the point to where they can finally do this and they're, they're doing multiples. And incrementally, I think this is roughly, this is looking like, I would say probably 20, I'm hearing like 20 to 25% of the market of fracks are these simultaneous fracks, which is gone up from like nothing. That's going to have an impact. And so from an inflation standpoint of like getting workers, the tightness, you've asked me this before and I didn't have good answers, but I think they're seeing real tightness now, like trucker, everything. One, partly because they can't, um, the unemployment, unemployment benefits are definitely impacting them. But it's really interesting because on the sand side, I think this whole um, mining locally. So you had a lot of sand companies go bankrupt, right? And, you know, sand warehouses and everything, last mile solutions. Um, Local sand mining is something very real in the Permian Basin. A handful of companies are doing it, but I think it is the trend. Like, I think by year end, everyone's going to mention it. And just for, for the folks who aren't familiar with the history of profit, we went from you oh, have yes. to have perfect sphericity. Yes, you ceramic man-made profit. Northern white or whatever yep. you need the perfect stuff to. We'll just take any old sand near the well. Yep. 
you have, well, it's not even any of, it's the same. So the Permian happens to have the geology that it's the same sand that they have at the sand mine, except you don't have to mine it. We, I mentioned it. We, I think we mentioned this in like the very first podcast that we did. I'm going to give a shout out to a company because I'm going to have them on the podcast is Nomad Propent. And they are one of the local sand mining companies that the coolest thing about this, folks, is that they have the companies are re- going to reduce their ESG footprint because they're and they the OSHA standards of like the air quality and having the microscopic stuff. It's wet sand. They're not drying it. So you reduce the you reduce the heat usage, which is your G on from an energy content side. So you're reducing that and then you're using the wet sand. So you're solving multiple things and then you fix the last mile solution. So it's right there. And think about if you're doing these simultaneous operations, that's really, really needed because they're fracking so much. They need so much sand, so much demand pull right now. And that's where I think we're, we're starting to see tightness. So these are really um, from a nerd perspective. These have such huge, profound implications for a market. And they're awesome because think about it. What if you can, I, I guarantee you, you can probably do this in North Dakota because we went from this perfect, we have to have perfect spherical sand and it's, we ought to have the conductivity. And, and so we had man-made ceramic propens and then, you know, EUG really pitched, it was the first one in the business really to start using local sand mines that there was their own mines. Um, and they had bought out, they'd bought Northern White, they'd actually had mines in Wisconsin in the Midwest, and then they owned that but they started using local sand in preference, um, partly probably because of transportation, but also because they thought it worked really well. This small, crappy hundred mesh pumping down their wells worked awesome. And that evolution, you know, took forever. Um, and I've had a gazillion conversations on this, but it took forever for people to finally recognize sand quality really doesn't matter, or to an extent it doesn't matter, but basically you can put very small mesh sand. In fact, it probably does better in a lot of these wells. And so the reality is, is that when they started mining locally, you know, local mines in the Permian, now it's just, you're, um, it's just an extension of that. It's, you have the geology, you know, basically across the Permian basin. And so you can mine by the well site. And I think Laredo was actually testing this out with the company in the, it wasn't Nomad, but um, Laredo was testing this out a few months ago. And I think we're gonna see it as as companies start doing it and then the big boys see it, you're going to see every one of these guys. And by the way, not even with the sand, just with the simultaneous racks and the um, and the I believe it's Pioneer that mentioned it is the two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars in well cost savings from longer laterals and these simulfrac operations per well. That's three hundred thousand per well. So these are relatively mean in terms of when you're getting your well cost down to five, six, seven million, you know, these this stuff adds up. So basically the the old theme, technology, best practice, deflationary is offsetting, you know, the general inflation that's out there. So the marginal cost of production isn't necessarily going up. Mm, absolutely not. And you actually hear that within, I mean, that's the whole game, right? You hear that within the Liberty call too, is that, look, we have efficiencies. And that's the most incredible thing about all this to me is that every quarter, this stuff is changing. Honestly, if you're talking to guys on the ground. I really, you know, people who want, people have started calling us about wanting to get on the podcast. If you want me, want to get on the podcast, I, I need a field trip to the Permian Basin um, and I want to see it. But I think it's important when you're talking to folks in the field, it's very different from, you know, even just the earnings calls and how quickly it's changing. But it has such a profound impact because it changes so quickly. It's like, Okay, so a couple of companies start using this local sand mining and, and then that starts taking off and it changes. Well, how long is it going to take OPEC to understand that? You know, how long is it going to take the Saudis to really understand that these efficiencies and the costs and everything are offsetting all this stuff? Because I guarantee you the Saudis are looking at this saying prices are going up, service costs are going to go up soon, you know, and this just isn't going to go anywhere. And your view is that they have the same 
myopia of vision that some of the U.S. forecasters have about prices going through the roof because we aren't spending enough money to, yes. to drive yeah. supply, which is they fail to see the efficiency gains happening in the U.S. And they got wrong what, you know, production coming back in 2020, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think so this gets to so we can kind of round out EOG. But so EOG kind of says, well, they have a slide, slide 13, that says no growth until market clearly needs the barrel. So they they quote themselves saying that. So they're saying they're not going to add any growth until the market. So, you know, that means okay. defined by price. Yeah. Well, they're saying demand recovery to pre-COVID levels, <clears throat> inventories out or below five year average and low spare capacity. So that doesn't mean we're waiting until it brings all the barrels back. That just means we're waiting until it looks really good. And they brought a lot of barrels giving back. themselves a little yeah. room, wiggle room yeah. there. Right? I mean, they can, make, they, they can make a lot of money at $50 oil. Yeah. They can grow at 10% and make money at $50 oil. So they're they're in a good position. Well, look, it's 60% targeted rate of returns at $40 oil and 250 gas. If that's their threshold for drilling wells, then whether or not that includes consolidated corporate GNA or not, that ought to produce really good returns. Right. And they also talk about, I, I agree with all that. Um, if, if that all works, I mean, it's not going to work. It never works out perfectly. This is the oil industry and their technical feats and all kinds of things. But you know, they also mentioned that they also mentioned that the um, that they're getting really good on the macro. So they basically say they're studying the macro intensely and they have a really good understanding and not just oil price and everything. But so they will be monitoring the macro extremely, extremely close and oil not just oil price, but all the things that impact it to when they do this. And that is different, very different from um, Pioneer because Scott Sheffield is uh, extremely bullish on oil prices and, you know, he's he likes to make calls and say that like say things like uh you know that trump's not getting elected and everything and then you know know that he's right on certain things but I, the only times i've ever heard folks be extremely bullish on or i would say extremely very um certain of themselves on the macro there have been a few of these and it harold ham continental resources um mark papa former ceo of eog but ceo of uh, a centennial resource development they were very blatantly wrong um or they got it wrong and they kept digging their heels into um their views of the macro and taking their companies in that direction I'm not saying pioneer or scott shuffle is necessarily doing that he is bullish though so he really sees that they have a um, that he said that oil prices are going to go range bound 50 to 70. And he says, we're clearly going to break out of 70 soon, you know, and they don't look to hedge or anything. Um, and that they, you know, he sees consolidation. Um, he sees consolidation as a very positive thing. So obviously he, of course you have to say that you just bought, you just bought double point for a lot of money. And by the way, it, so our numbers, people corrected and said it was it was people told me, oh, it's 100,000 barrels a day they bought. It's 92,000 barrel of oil equivalent per day. So that means it was what, 70,000 barrel of oil per day, probably, you know, with a, with a decent amount of gas. So it still they paid 6.2 billion, right? 6.2 billion for that. It was a crap ton of money um, for the company. Now, did give them I mean, you can see the map. Um, Gave them some blocky, but look at the map. I mean, there's so they show Pioneer at slide five. They show Pioneer as acreage and they show double point. It is very blocky. It fits in really, really nicely, but it's not a lot, folks. This is just it's not a ton of it's not a ton of acreage. So it gets to the point of kind of what uh, of 
the theme of all this and in, in that the prices for this, it, it makes sense for these. These big guys need to buy up more acreage. It gives them more inventory, it gives them more running room, more flexibility. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't say they had to, but clearly the everything was in their favor to do it and they went ahead and did it. And then Scott Sheffield's point about the consolidation in the market, because, um, uh, you know, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch guy, he's he uh, what's I'm blanking on his name, British guy who uh, likes to ask the theoretical questions. Um, he asks, you know, why don't, uh, you know, if you're if you're all about not growing production, why would you buy, why would you buy this company? And Scott Sheffield says, well, we bought the company because, you know, if more of us bought these small companies and then they reduced output, then would be in a better place. But at the same time, he also says that he doesn't think these small companies are going to move the needle on production. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of small companies that have increased the rig count significantly. So I think it's embarrassed who has this at 550, roughly 550, 543 something rigs for the U.S. total. And they include that's that's much higher than Baker Hughes right now. But that's because they include everything, right? It's workover rigs. It's everything. And that, you know, well north of 200 rigs and, you know, we're right around 230 rigs in the Permian Basin. A lot of those rig additions have been from these private companies. And that is a serious bifurcation that you're seeing in the in the oil patch of particularly in the Permian of these small of these private companies just going crazy. There's it's $65 oil. It makes sense for them to go crazy. They're going to go crazy all the time. Um, and then, of course, they get asked, well, you know, you're kind of enforcing that, right? They think they're going to get purchased. So they're just going to go crazy. And I thought some of them do. Some of them may not. But if some of these guys do get purchased, especially in the Midland, let's talk Endeavor, Surge, CrownQuest, you name it. You know, there's a lot of these small private companies that are hanging out in the Permian. Um, and, uh, and Endeavor's not public, are they? I don't know. Anyways, I'm, I could be blank on that. I don't Anyways, think so. You have, you have lots of private companies within the Permian Basin, much smaller than that as well. And they're all, they're all adding rigs and they're all drilling. Now, if they get purchased by these companies, it does have a pretty big impact, I think, on the service sector for in terms of the actual, you know, who's fracking right now and who's running stuff. So in addition to the fact that the service sector is kind of already, you know, is already still has too many, um, too much equipment and needs consolidation, this is another headwind for them. They're uh, not public there that's what i thought yeah. awesome good I, i'm not wrong about that so that's great so pioneer talks about their uh, compelling free cash flow um 23 billion in free cash flow from 2021 to 2026 they go on about their variable dividend as well basically saying you know they have their base dividend and then their variable dividend and they think they think this is the best way to sort of return those um turn that money to, to shareholders i i just still think that look if it's very <laughs> Sure, it's, it's like, okay, if oil prices are good and things are running good, that's great. But if oil prices go down, and I, I think at the end of the day, shareholders still want, well, I guess they want to know their base. And as long as that's not changing, that's awesome. And then your variables sort of this icing on top, which is sort of what EOG did, just throwing out, you know, your dollar per yeah, share. Yeah, but thing. again, paying any dividend as an EMP company in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. From where we've come. Absolutely. Is great. Uh, absolutely. And so, I mean, I, they're also, and they're growing, you know, their target range is sort of growth at, at 5%. So you have to think about all these companies too. Again, I, I think it's important to think about any, even modest growth. If it's one to five to 10%, they have to add, you know, they have to add a couple rigs there. I don't think they're going to be adding a whole lot of frat crews given the, given the trajectory, one, the longer laterals or the, the incremental move toward longer laterals overall. And then this, the simultaneous fracks that I guarantee you will continue to grow. So you're just not going to need, you're not going to be doubling, I think, uh, the frack fleets, um, within the Permian and the fact that 
many of those freckleets are not fully dedicated, which means some of them that are just hanging out there, the one-offs, um, those will be pulled in. Um, so that this to me is just telling me that, you know, these companies, it's important that they have, um, I wouldn't say n hedging is not important right now, but the maintenance capital is something really important to think about that they have, they will have to maintain their spending. And because they're so big now, that spending is quite a bit. We're talking billions, millions and billions in the case of all these guys. Shall we proceed to our friends, friend of the show, Chris Wright at Liberty Oil Absolutely. Field Services. All Absolutely. right. We'll wrap up there. Yes, we will wrap up there. So right. uh, Liberty Oil Field Services. So really, in terms of wanting to learn about the market, if you're just looking for literally an earnings call to tell you the state of, of sort of the U.S. service market, it is a great call. I think Halliburton's call was actually pretty good on that as well. But Liberty sort of gets more into the weeds on things. Um, so I thought it was a really it was a very interesting call because um, Chris Wright opens up and talks about the state of the market. He basically he he does call out and say, I know everyone's telling you that they won't need your oil, but um, they couldn't be more wrong. Um, so he's like explains the whole uh, how he how he sees the energy transition and everything. And, and he is one of the industry's leading energy advocates. And uh, I'd say a, a truth teller and peacemaker. Um, yes. And he's so so I've, I've known Chris for a while. And so I, th I think he does a good job of, of sort of explaining this market stuff. And he does a lot of research as well. He gets into an, a number of different interesting factors in here. So they I, again, I mentioned they, they basically said they have 20 percent you know, they're fracking 30 um, percent of the wells. They have 15 to 20 percent of the market. And so they with the one sim acquisition from Schlumberger, obviously they have a huge um, they purchased all this stuff and, and they have a lot of frack fleets. So running about 30 frack fleets um, and they from the ESG standpoint, I did think it was interesting, um, both from sort of the simultaneous frack perspective and then from an ESG standpoint and efficiencies. I mean, Chris Wright talks about like the efficiencies a lot. I don't know how many times he mentions it in the call, but efficiencies are huge. And so he does mention that, you know, we're drilling, we're producing oil for less, for the cost less than we did before. And that's in the face of what Ethan had just said, you know, the fact that you're having positive free cash flow and all these things, the fact that you're lowering your cost per barrel for production, it, it, that we're continuing to do that is still really huge. And the fact that every operator um, and many that I've listened to, and in addition to that, we, we haven't talked about specifically, but just efficiencies are really are loud and clear throughout all these calls of, of doing more with less. And I'm not saying that it can't go away, that you can't have, um, you know, service cost, we can't have inflation, but it's just really important to realize that we have that in the face of $65 WTI. So, I mean, tailwinds for them were the same with 65 WTI, you know, um, prices looking good. They did hone in on the market bifurcation though as well, is that you have a lot of these smaller guys, smaller companies that are, that are adding, you know, the fracking more wells and they're doing stuff. And so they said, Hey, we're seeing great capital discipline from the bigger companies and the majors and the publics, but we're not seeing that same capital discipline um, with these smaller guys. And so the smaller guys are making up a decent chunk of the pie. And they are, it also means that I think, and we heard this from Halliburton as well. And I, I think from just overall, what I, my understanding of the industry, I think the second half of the year for the service sector could be counter cyclically a little bit better. So we typically sort of start tapering off in third and fourth quarter. And as people have you know, spent all their money, I don't think we're going to see that the same thing. I think we're going to continue to see at the very least, I think the third and fourth quarter are going to be pretty steady. Um, and we may actually see some of these private companies, whether you're private with your private equity backed 
So we're back. More technical difficulties on the damn recording side. So anyways. Don't get in trouble with your mom. um, Oh, yeah. My mom doesn't. She loved the podcast with Chuck Yates, except she didn't like all my cussing. Um, And she thought the sound quality was better than this one. I told her we didn't have a private studio. So anyways. Back to back to Liberty Oilfield Services. So a couple of big things in the call, in addition to these the efficiencies and the and the bifurcation of the industry and everything, was that uh, so they're doing an investor they're doing an investor day in June, um, and then then interesting Chris Wright is actually they are doing an ESG report that they're releasing June first. So it is not I don't think this is going to be a typical ESG report. This is going to be a Chris Wright. ESG report. That's actually what I'm looking forward yeah. to reading. So it'll be really, I think it will be very interesting, certainly interesting for the industry. And I think it's, I think it's important to realize like he does have a different, um, he has a, he studied the market really well. Um, he knows the stuff cold. And um, so we are seeing some differences in the, you know, e-frac, electric flack and the dual fuel frack fleet. So I think no matter what, all these frack fleets have to go toward that. There's a pressure and demand for um, lower carbon fracking, right? So EOG talks about their electric, the five electric frack frack fleets that they have that they use. Um, But, and I know probably whatever, six quarters ago, when somebody mentioned, or, or maybe five quarters ago, when somebody mentioned electric frack fleets, Halliburton, and, and I think Liberty too, were both like, yeah, we're not doing that. And of course, now they can't say that because the demand is higher and they may in theory be, if they can get the efficiencies and if they can make them run better, they may in theory be able to charge a little more for them. But they do talk about the natural gas side, that they're using a, they talk about using not a natural gas turbine on site by using, and I don't, I would love to. I really do want to have a, uh, a sit down with with Liberty Oil Field Services because I love the frack space, um, as you guys know, and talking about frack sand and everything completions. But they talk about the um, using a natural gas reserve engine versus a natural gas turbine on site for fracking, and, and that they see that that is a significant difference on the frack side from an efficiency standpoint, especially from a fuel use standpoint. And I do think it's a clear trend. It's a clear trend in the industry that they are. Um, the need for dual fuel, the ability to do a, you know, power being powered by natural gas is important. Um, and then I, I also think just the overall efficiency. So if you are not running as efficiently as efficiently with a natural gas system versus a diesel system from a power standpoint, that's not going to work either. So I, I think this is going to continue to evolve from a, you have to have the choice of, um, and I, I, I'm happy for somebody to get on here and ex- uh, get deeper into the weeds on this. But from my understanding, from what I've heard both from especially from Halliburton and Liberty in their calls was that, you know, the need for multi-fuel is, is like, that's an automatic, you have to have that or you're going to be pushed out. And then increasingly, you're probably going to need to provide greener and greener options um, on, a, on a lower emission standpoint, lower GHGs for your clients. Yeah, I think that's a clear trend. Well, with that, I think we are at a natural stopping point. Unless Trisha wants to say one more thing. No, I just, you know, he's got to say it's a natural stopping point. He never just lets me, lets me naturally. So it is a natural stopping point and we probably should conclude because we've been talking always a while. A, always a minefield. Well, thanks for joining us for episode 16. I'm Ethan Bellamy and this is Trisha Curtis. We wish you well. And we'll see you again Thank soon. Thank you guys so much. Bye.